Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. Let's make God's Word a present priority. It's early in the year. It's not too late to say, man, I'm going to start every day with you, Lord. Or even better, Lord, give me the strength and give me the, you know, the just that insatiable hunger and desire for your word so that every day I wake up thinking, man, I just want more of you, Lord, and more of your word. There is a feast awaiting us every time we open the word. Matthew 22. Pastor Sam is looking at this chapter in his message, Tried and Tested. And we begin by looking at the parable of the wedding feast. And while this is a parable, when you consider it, you realize that it is exactly what much of the world has done with God's invitation. Matthew 22, the title of our message, Tried and Tested. We are going to notice together today something that, well, I've been seeing in Scripture for a very long time and have been observing, well, just in my interaction with people for a very long time. And that is that people's responses to Jesus' teaching, to Jesus' miracles, to Jesus' call and claims, well, they vary. And uh, we'll see at least four, maybe five different responses of people to the claims of Christ and the call of Christ in our passage today. It's also true that people's reasons for coming to Jesus, and that would include coming to church, well, they vary. We come with lots of perceived needs. But I like to suggest to you that whatever you think brought you here, God actually has a greater purpose, a greater desire. He knows your ultimate and deepest needs. We only, well, we deal sort of on the surface. You know, if I'm hungry, I need to eat. If I'm thirsty, I need to drink. And the Lord's like, man, I have stuff that can satisfy you beyond anything you can even begin to imagine. Well, the chapter begins with a parable, and then it moves on to really three groups of people that come with questions for Jesus, some interesting motivations for those questions. We'll look at that. But the parable, first of all, Jesus spoke this parable, and we read in verse 2, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. He sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who were invited, see, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest, they seized his servants, treated them spitefully and killed them. Now, we'll pause for a moment because you got to first understand this in its immediate historical context in order to broaden it and apply it to well, how it might have some application for us. The kingdom of heaven Jesus is talking about here is the kingdom of God. And, and this isn't just a story about oh, any old king and any old king's son. No, this is our, our God, our heavenly father sending his prophets to draw people, his servants to draw people to, well, a feast prepared for his son. Now, the son in the parable is going to be our Lord and Savior, Jesus. The prophets, and we saw the same thing if you were with us in the parable of the landowner, very similar, but, but here we, we get some further insight. So the picture is the Lord desires to feast with his people. He's having a great celebration, a wedding celebration. He calls the called, and there's a little bit of a play on words there in verse 3. It's not so obvious in our English, but if you saw it in the original Greek, you'd see it clearly. It says, and, and uh, they went out to call those who were invited, literally to call the called. 
The picture being, and it's something we understand because we do the same thing. First, an invitation would go out, and and uh, at that point, people would say, yeah, you can count on me, I'll be there. Then when everything was ready, they would send out yet another invitation saying, hey, the feast is ready, the wedding's about to start, come and celebrate with us. We do this when we send out wedding invitations. We give RSVP saying we intend to be there and such. And so, so really, we're familiar even in our culture. But we don't realize that in that culture, it was a great insult to not show. In our culture, well, we say maybe or we might. or But in that culture, to not show for something like this, serious business. Well, you see the graciousness of God in verse 4. Having been, well, having really been rebuffed by those who no doubt first suggested they were interested and would be there. It says at this point they were not willing to come. He sent out other servants saying, tell those who were invited, I've prepared. Hey, the dinner's ready. All things are ready. Come to the wedding. Now this becomes a picture historically for us because we're looking back, but for them it was happening at the time. God had sent the Old Testament prophets saying, prepare for the coming of the Lord. He then sent the apostles and the prophets of the New Testament to go out and preach the very same thing. The difference being Christ had come, Messiah had laid down his life, our Lord and Savior Jesus had died for our sins and for theirs. And so yet another wedding is planned, another wedding is in the works. And so, so what are the responses? Note in verse 5, but they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. Now, this is just a picture of indifference. Uh, they either made light of the invitation or they busied themselves in their occupations. But either way, they were indifferent to the call of the Lord to come and feast with them. Now, there's a practical application immediately for us because every single day of our lives, the Lord is calling us, come and feast with me. Come and celebrate with me. And we do it as we get into his word. We touched on it last time. Baby Christians, the pure milk of the word. Mature Christians, the meat of the word. Every single Christian, the bread of the word. Give us this day our daily bread. And just like you, every morning I'm confronted with, well, a series of choices. And I've noticed, and I don't really understand why, I can only tell you that it's true. I wake up, my Bible is right there on the bedstand, right next to my bed. There's a light there. I'm comfortable. I'm in my jammies. Be easy to just open the Bible and say, Lord, I just want to I just want to fellowship with you. I want to feast on your word. I want to start this day right with you. But for some reason, the newspaper outside is calling to me. And I know some of you can relate. And it's like, man, it is not convenient to get it. I got to dress. I got to get on shoes. Sometimes you got to deal with the weather, the rain. But for some reason, I'm out there and I get the paper and I'm like, it's the same news day after day after day. But man, God's word, it's alive and powerful and makes a difference and it changes and transforms me. And, and so if you, like me, don't automatically wake up and say, all right, let's go, God, let's, let's do it, then I would suggest maybe the Lord would be speaking to us today and saying, let's make God's word a present priority. It's early in the year. It's not too late to say, man, I'm going to start every day with you, Lord. Or even better, Lord, give me the strength and give me the, you know, the just that insatiable hunger and desire for your word so that every day I wake up thinking, man, I just want more of you, Lord, and more of your word. There is a feast 
awaiting us every time we open the word. Well, they made light some, and, and some of us are a bit indifferent to the word of God. Lots of people in our culture certainly indifferent. But not everyone simply indifferent. Some absolutely hostile. The rest we read or read in verse 6. The rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. Now, this is a historical picture for us. It's something that had been happening throughout their history. God had spoken to them through Moses and given them the law. And then when they rebelled against him or were indifferent to him, he sent the prophets. Some simply shined on the prophets. Others were aggressively hostile toward the prophets. And I've noticed in our day, there are some people simply indifferent to the call and claims of Christ. There are other people aggressively hostile toward it. And I never get over the fact that people who consider themselves atheists, which means they don't believe there is a God at all, are so angry and frustrated toward the God they don't believe in. Have you noticed that? I'm not saying all atheists are like that, but I've been in, in those things where an atheist is debating a Christian, and i got to admit, a lot of times the Christians don't do as good as I wish they would and defending the faith in their positions. But it seems like the atheist is so angry and frustrated with the whole idea of God. Why? If he doesn't exist, let it go. Let us be deluded and enjoy our life of delusion. But... But the thing is, we know we're not deluded. We have good reason to believe the Bible, to believe in the Lord. We have the prophetic word made more sure. We have hundreds of prophecies fulfilled in the person of our Lord and his first coming. And, and lots more to come. But, but these are two of the many ways people respond. Indifference or hostility. Now the Lord's response in this passage to the hostility, well it's not exactly the same as to the indifference. When someone is indifferent toward the Lord, he continues to pursue them. When someone is hostile toward the Lord, he'll do one of two things. He'll either turn them, as he did with Saul. I mean, he converted him on the Damascus Road, and that does happen. Or he'll simply destroy them. And that's what we read here. When the king heard about it, he was furious. He sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. This, by the way, is how we got here. The Lord will have his house filled. He'll have his feast celebrated. He'll have the wedding well attended. And so someone came and drew us, spoke to us, encouraged us. The Lord cares for you. The Lord loves you. The Lord has something for you. And then we, having heard that and believed it, now we become ambassadors for him to go out and do the very same thing for others. Well, the servants went out to the highways. They gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guest, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. Now, lest you think this is harsh, you've got to understand the historical context once again of it. In a situation where someone like a king was holding a great feast, well, even the commoners would have a week-long feast. How'd you like to celebrate for a week when your kids get married? We got a son about to get married, and I like that idea. Well, unless I got to pay for it all, of course, but... <laughs> But the idea of a week-long feast with all your family and all your friends, not just a day to celebrate, but a week of celebration. 
Well, that's what they would do. Hey, and when a king's son got married, it went on, sometimes for weeks. So the wedding garments were always provided by the host. You got to know that for this to make sense to you. This guy came in. Everything he needed to fit in was provided for him. He'd been invited. He'd been drawn in. And the garments he needed to be accepted were provided. But instead, he, well, came in his own garb, in his own gear. Now, there's a spiritual picture here for us because the Bible tells us that apart from the rightness, the righteousness is the theological word, but we can just use the word rightness that we found in Christ. We can't stand before God, you see. We can't feast at his table. In the very same way that Adam and Eve, before they sinned against God, they were naked, and you know the story, but they were unashamed. Why? There was nothing perverse in them. There was nothing sinful in them. And so there they were in in perfect innocence. They weren't stupid. It's not that they didn't know they were naked. They just didn't care that they were naked. Now, after they fell, after they sinned, immediately they sought to cover themselves up. You see, sin does that. Immediately we try to cover up. And the next thing they do is they hide from God. Now, years ago, when we first moved to Durham, we had this huge fig bush. And and ever since I had that encounter, I had to take it out because we were going to actually move the porch and do some remodeling there. And so I told Pam, I could take that thing out. And, And man, I will tell you, fig leaves are the most itchy thing on the planet. It's important to know that as you read through that story because in their attempts to cover their sin and their nakedness, they sewed together what? Fig leaves. Man, I'm sure God came and said, whew, that's bad, you know. That's got a smart, you know. He had to feel sorry for him. And so what happens? The very first sacrifice recorded in Scripture at that point. Are we sure it was a sacrifice? Oh, you can be sure. Because he gave them the skins of an animal to cover themselves. You see, if he just fleeced a sheep, he could have provided. But that sheep that provided their covering, it had to die. And throughout the scripture from the beginning, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God, the Lamb of God, all the way till we get to our Lord and Savior, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now here's the picture. They were uncovered and unfit for fellowship with God. They couldn't walk with God as they had in the past. And they tried to cover themselves and their coverings were unacceptable. So God provided a covering. He provided that which would not only cover, but make them acceptable. There was the sacrifice, so there was the shed blood. And then there was the covering, so well, they were clothed now, and that provided by the Lord. That's exactly what the Lord has done for each and every one of you. He has clothed you, if in fact you're in Christ Jesus, with his rightness, with his righteousness. And here's the good news, folks. We are invited to yet another wedding, another feast, where we will be both the bride and the guest of honor. Revelation 19 talks about it. It's going to happen. But in any case, back to our story. This guy, because he would not avail himself of that provided for him, and that's what you have to see, he was cast out and rejected. Now, all of this is being spoken in the presence of the religious leaders of Jesus' day. And not only were there different responses, as I shared, different reasons for coming to him. We find the Pharisees, first of all, went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. 
Their motivation for coming to the Lord wasn't to learn from the Lord, wasn't to honor the Lord. No, it was simply to ensnare and trap the Lord. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodian saying, well, before we even hear what they said, note, Herodians and Pharisees. Pharisees, very conservative, very religious, very spiritual, at least outwardly, as spiritual as you could get. Herodians, man, they were the far extreme, you see. They were all about politics. They were all political. They were into Herod, and Herod was, well, into Caesar. And, and they were really playing ball with the Roman government. And under any other circumstances, well, Herodians, they would just be the worst possible enemies of the Pharisees. Pharisees, spiritual, religious, into the word. Herodians could care less. And yet these guys get together. Why? They all felt threatened by Jesus. And so they come to him saying, and note there's some flattery here, and we know because their motivations are wrong, it's vain flattery. Watch out for flattery, I would encourage you. Teacher, we know you are true. And teach the way of God in truth. By the way, absolutely true on both counts. Actually, three counts. He was a teacher and the greatest teacher ever. And that he himself was true and he taught the way of God in truth. When they say you don't care about anyone or regard the person of man, they're not saying something negative about him. They're saying we know you're going to tell the truth because you're not, well, you're not motivated politically like so many. You're not worried about yourself like so many. You're not like us. In essence, they were saying you're different. But, but remember, they're flattering him because they're laying a trap. But, but he, they're not really saying, you don't have concern for people. They're just saying, you're not overly concerned with how people are going to respond when you share the truth. And so, all of those things true about our Lord. Tell us, they go on to say, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, this is why these two groups were together. The... Pharisees hated the fact that they had to pay taxes to Caesar. It wasn't that they resented taxes. They had always been taxed. They'd been taxed for their own temple. They were taxed for the upkeep of the priesthood and all that. It wasn't that they were opposed to taxes. But this tax, well, it went to Caesar. And the coin that they used, as we'll see in a moment, it had both an inscription claiming that Caesar was actually deity or the son of deity. He was claiming to be Lord and God, demanding to be worshipped. It had his image and his inscription. So they felt it was an abomination to have to even use the coins, much less render to Caesar one of those coins. The Herodians, on the other hand, they could care less. They were all about taxes and government and Rome and Herod. And so, in any case, the trap was sprung and here's why, or the trap was set and here's why. If Jesus says, well, no, you shouldn't have to pay those taxes. I, I agree with you, Pharisees. Well, the Herodians would immediately report him to the authorities. But if he said, well, yeah, pay your taxes, then, well, the Pharisees could go and say, see, he doesn't care about you people, and he doesn't care about the fact that this is idolatry, and that's how they saw it. The first and second commandment said, you're not to make any idol or any image, you're not to bow down or worship anyone but the Lord, and Caesar was demanding all of that. So they thought, man, we have a trap, and he'll never get out of this. Now, Jesus says, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Now, we know Matthew's writing the gospel, so the part where he says they were trying to plot 
and trap him? Well, that was his insight. But here's our Lord's insight. He knew they were testing him and he called them hypocrites. We're not going to spend any time on that word today because the title of our next message is, in fact, hypocrisy or how to be religious and still go to hell. That's what chapter 23 is all about. That's what we're going to look at next time. But, but Jesus calls them hypocrites because he knew they were acting, they were pretending, they were playing. They weren't sincere in their desire to have an answer to this question. Well, he says then, show me the tax money. They brought him a denarius and he said, whose image and whose inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Now, they weren't counting on this little question, whose image and subscription or inscription Basically, they, they really, well, it's, it's Caesar's image. They've got to answer. So he answers, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, for those of you who may be in the category where you don't really appreciate paying taxes, Romans 13 says, render to all whom is due what is due them. In order, other words, we're to pay our taxes because, well, the government was instituted by God. And if the government's doing a poor job or misrepresenting, well, we're in a country where we can make a difference in all of that. But even in countries where they don't have a vote or they can't change it, know this, God says, all authority is instituted by God. And the authorities exist, well, for your protection if you're doing good, and for your discipline if you're doing evil. And so if we get a horrible government and they misspend all our money and they misuse us and abuse us, well, we're getting exactly what we deserve. And that's the case in every situation. God raised up the Romans to discipline his nation of Israel. Is it the first time he did it? Absolutely not. He raised up the Babylonians centuries earlier to do the very same thing during a time of idolatry and immorality. And so... God uses government. And you wouldn't want to live in a country without government. Though I don't agree with all the things the government does, though I don't agree with lots of things the government does. I pay my taxes and, and I know that God's pleased and blessed with that. And if they misuse them, well, I can pray, Lord, just you know, deal with them. See, they become stewards then of that which is entrusted to their care. But, but here he's saying, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. We're to render honor to whom it is due. We're to render all that is due to whomever it's due. And then something else, and for our purposes, perhaps even more important, and to God, the things that are God's. You know, years ago, almost 23 or 24 years ago, in a home fellowship I was leading, Kevin, and most of you know him, he leads worship with me every other Sunday, Sunday nights does Worship Generation. He does um, Wednesday nights with me as well. His dad and I had a home fellowship in, in their home. Uh, Kevin, you know, just either not born yet or just a little teeny baby at that time. So it's kind of a trip. But his dad, as we were studying through this passage, said, Oh, the Lord showed me something cool, Sam. I'm like, well, share it. And he's like, man, we were created in the image of God. And I thought that is so perfect. And, it, and it's so true. Render unto God the things that are God's. You were created in the image of God. And yes, sin has marred that image. I mean, we are not what God intended, obviously. But we are becoming more like Jesus. Those of us who are alive in Him, born again of His Spirit, we are being transformed into people more like Him every day. His glory shows through us or shines through us each and every day. We are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. And so 
this wonderful picture. Render to Caesar what you need and what you must, but then render to God. Well, what belongs to God? Our whole person. And before we get through this study, he'll say the greatest commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind. Our whole person. That's what we're to render unto God. Romans tells us that we're to present our bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord, which is a reasonable and rational response to all he's done for us. When we think about being created in the image of God and then becoming more like him, well, it's easy for us to take a look at ourselves and even other Christians and think, you know, I just don't see it. But that is where this promise comes in. In Philippians 1.6, we are told, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. You see, this is a promise we are to be confident in. It is a process that each and every child of God will see completed by Jesus, and you can rest in that. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.